You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hey, wake up. Wake up, everybody. It's a gorgeous day. Gorgeous day. Come here. 20th Century Fox presents the story of Carla Moran. The most extraordinary case in the history of psychic research. A team of experts will investigate her life. Why does he attack you, Carla? Not anyone else. Why is she going to such lengths to support this delusion? And they will find more than evidence. They will find the entity. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Entity? More like entropy. Also along with us for the ride this week is Mr. Daniel Kremer. I ain't afraid of no ghost. Our Shocktober coverage continues with the 1981 horror film The Entity, based on a book by and adapted by Frank DeFolita. The film was directed by Sidney J. Fury and stars Barbara Hershey as Carla Moran, a woman haunted by a malevolent spirit that sexually terrorizes her. Is she truly haunted? Is it all a hysterical projection? Why her and why now? I'm hoping we can attempt to answer some of these questions as we look at the entity. So, Daniel, as our guest, when was the first time that you saw the entity and what did you think? Well, I actually saw the entity relatively late into my Fury uh, uh, study because uh, I, I, I wrote the book on uh, Sydney and his films. I basically gone uh, in order. I had seen uh, as many as there were available as I can get hold of. Uh, I'd seen like the young ones. I'd seen the boys, uh, leather boys, hip Chris I'd seen when I was very young. So I really waited uh, to see the entity until I knew that I wanted to do uh, originally this blog piece about about his his, uh, his work. I had entered into it knowing that it was this big uh, kind of cult film of, uh, that, that, that always sold out to midnight screenings. Uh, I know that IFC in New York has uh, has uh, screened it on many occasions at midnight screens, and it's always done quite well in terms of ticket sales. So I, I, I waited, and uh, when I finally saw it, you know, I, I'm not I'm not a huge horror film guy, but uh, Entity. I mean, it was it was the premise itself that I was like, I, uh, I wonder how they're going to get away with this. Rob, when did you first see the Entity? Uh, didn't see it until. Um... I saw it for the show. Um, I knew that it was one that you had wanted to do because I think it was after we did Shrite 9000 or Hit where we talked to Mr. Fury before and we had talked to Alex Rocco, who sadly had passed away recently. Uh, you had discussed doing it. So it was a little bit of a surprise for me and in a way kind of see it as a bridge film uh, actually between uh, two other films. And I'll talk about that later. I think I came to this film kind of in a weird way. I think I came to it through the art films that were based on the film. There is a filmmaker, Peter Cherkowski, who made two films at least that were based on the entity. And it was this kind of like um, 
like optical printing kind of nightmarish thing with there were they replaced the soundtrack mostly they're in black and white it's like multiple images coming at you uh really kind of old school um experimental type films i'd seen films kind of like that when i was working at the inner film festival so i was familiar with some of the images and i wasn't that familiar with the film overall and finally seeing it just recently for the first time i was really impressed by it i wasn't sure because I sat down and you guys know me. I'm I'm very uh, OCD when it comes to these movies. So I read the book first and then I watched the movie. And it was interesting to see how De Felita had uh, adapted his own work and then what Fury brought to the party. Daniel, you mentioned the uh, canted angles, the Dutch angles, the low angles, and yeah, those are all over the place. I've actually seen people criticizing that, and, but I didn't even notice them until it was brought to my attention. Just um, it wasn't like Battlefield Earth or something where everything was off kilter all the time and it was just to the point of ridiculousness. For me, that use of the canted angles was so in service of the story that I just went along with it. And it was just, uh, yeah, I rewatched it again today and it was just as, as effective the second time, if not more effective, kind of having the dread of knowing what was going to happen when, because it really, uh, it, it took me by surprise. So let's talk a little bit about the plot. One of the things, talking about being surprising, I was shocked at those opening credits. Did those feel like they were just flying by to you guys? It's just helping uh, and, and, you know, to get the, the kind of uh, a scenario of, I guess, I'm not sure, I don't think they're, they're uh, um, I don't, I'm not sure if they flew by to me in, in the sense that they're, they're, I think they're just depicting uh, um, uh, Hershey as a kind of, uh, um, you know, a woman who's kind of uh, working herself up uh, or, or working her way up the ladder by, you know, by just uh, you know, a lot of uh, taking night classes and, and uh, I guess, t- and uh, uh, taking on, a, uh, I guess, one one uh, late night uh, or graveyard shift job. It's interesting uh, also Charles Bernstein's score uh, in that uh, we're kind of seeing these prosaic images of just her, you know, I guess uh, a day in the life of, of Carla Moran, and you know she's taking uh, the, the computer classes or something. I think, and uh, and uh, and then uh, circa 1981, I guess, or or uh, typing classes. I think it's it's just a typewriter, and also just uh, taking a, a, a like a secretarial job, and then coming home, and then you know it's a, it's kind of like the kind of contrapuntal thing where you know we're seeing this these kind of Otherwise boring images offset by, you know, it's kind of like, uh, um, kind of reminds me of, uh, like, the, the Exorcist, uh, Mike Oldfield, uh, uh, Tubular Bells score in a way. Because we know, I think, by the sound of just the, that theme that things are, are you know, maybe not going to go so well for this character throughout the, 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 the remainder of the film. But uh, uh, but we're but you know here in this at this point we're seeing her and she's just kind of going about her daily life doing rather boring things and then but but we we know uh, just from uh, the way that the, the music and the, I guess the shots as well uh, but but really the shots don't go haywire until uh, I think uh, after the first incident. 
it feels like there's a real uh, economy when it comes to the storytelling here because we get that day in the life so quickly during those opening credits. She comes home. It's late at night. She has a little conversation with her son. His name is Billy. He's played by David Labiosa. And we get uh, her two girls in there. Uh, I think it's uh, Julie and Kim. Within moments, I, I didn't look to see how soon it is, but she's there after the end of a long day, and out of nowhere, she gets smacked by this unseen assailant. And within moments, the soundtrack just erupts with this crazy music, and she is there getting attacked by this unseen assailant. And he's got a pillow over her face, and she's trying to scream. I was just so shocked that 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 happened so quickly because I thought, okay, well, you know, it'll be maybe like Poltergeist where we get a whole lot of stuff where we set up the family. We really get a whole lot of of stuff going on and it takes so long for us to get in there. And and with Poltergeist, if you guys remember, you get like the TV thing, you get the chairs being set up, you you get the uh, Carol Ann going across the floor with the uh, helmet on all these kind of like playful things before the malevolent stuff starts to happen and no it is right out of the gate in this film and then even even uh, uh, even the more uh, prosaic material, and Poltergeist, I mean, you have, like, the, the football game and the kid on the bike with, I guess, the beer, if, if, if memory serves. And it's, like, um, you know, kind of uh, suburban America. So Entity is longer, but it gets it gets kind of the show on the road earlier. Because uh, I, I was likewise uh, uh, shocked by how quickly the story at hand entered the, the, you know, the movie, I guess, or the way, the way that it just came up. And you and it's like, oh wow, that was fast. We're like right into it now. And when it comes to the second attack, again, it could have been a half an hour. You know, we could have just had the one, and it could have been her sitting around going, "What the hell happened?" Okay, now I'm starting to doubt myself. You know, maybe it was a robber. All the, and and they do think that at first that maybe it was a rapist inside of the house, and they're they're looking for him. But I mean, that second attack comes right away too so there's no doubt it's just like oh my god here it is again and just really pulled the rug out from underneath me right exactly it's just uh, um, yeah because one does follow the other I think the the second one is kind of uh, um, things begin to shake in the room, and it's kind of this build up. You have all these uh, sweat diopter shots, uh, which it's it's, it's uh, important I think to mention that the the, the director of photography was uh, Steve Burum, who had worked uh, uh, prior to that with. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I think he worked with uh, Brian De Palma later uh, on the the uh, <laughs> Untouchables, and you see that same kind of camera tool being used to, to affect in that film. Then you have the kind of this build-up moment where the things in the room begin to shake. There's kind of this, this whatever, this little, like, one-room earthquake where, where you know, there's, we're getting different shots, and she's 
she thinks that there might be something in the room, and gradually we're building that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's everything. And everything in the movie. Uh, what's also uh, really interesting to mention: everything in the movie feels incredibly deliberate. It feels like it feels almost like Sydney's most planned film because uh, um, uh, in terms of just like having a real sense of like, okay, now we're going to cut to that shot and we're going to cut to that shot and we're going to really build this thing. And this is like, this is like a blueprint. This is like a really solid, this is how we're going to build the building, you know? Uh, whereas uh, if you know uh, Sydney, I was just working on set with him uh, on his new film in, in June and July. And uh, his whole kind of workflow is that he likes to show up uh, early in the morning, and, and he has no real, um, like, traditional plan prior to just showing up before anyone else gets there on the set and just kind of feeling it and kind of moving along and saying, okay, now we should maybe get this, you know, but, but Entity feels like really his most deliberate uh, film in terms of like kind of the formal elements, you know, the way that shots build off of each other, the way that shots complement each other, the way that the tension is built through these things. Um, it, it's, it's very interesting to, to consider in the kind of the, the gestalt of the career, how, how this is working. You know? So we've got Carla taking refuge at her friend Cindy's pretty quickly in here. And Cindy, it was interesting because um, Cindy is married to this guy, George. And for a little while, I was wondering if George was a real person. Because for the longest time, he's just off screen and we'll hear about George. We hear his voice, but we never actually see him. It takes forever for George to come on screen. And for me, it almost felt like both Cindy and Carla had these ghosts in their lives. And the thing that's interesting to me about that choice is that I think it really builds in this place of the women being together and trying to work with each other or understand what the other one's going through. And then when you get to the point where the doctor is brought in and eventually uh, the boyfriend played by Alex Rocco, there really is a feeling that sort of like men are the outsiders in this world, that they are sort of the interlopers and they're not necessarily going to understand, or at least that seems to be the implication to me. It feels at first like it's a haunted house film. Like, you know, talking about poltergeist. You son of a bitch, you moved the cemetery, but you left the bodies, didn't you? You son of a bitch, you left the bodies and you only moved the headstones! You only moved the headstones! Within, like, you know, so they stay at Cindy's a little while. Her husband's really grouchy, wants them out of there. So they go, and in the book, they are actually on the way back to her uh, hometown, but they decide against it. So they go back to the house. And I like how there's that kind of little interlude there in the film where they just go to the beach and just kind of recover for a little bit and then go back to the house. And again, within, you know, there's a little reminder there, like the this lamp goes off and it's like, okay, yeah, the ghost is still around. But then when she goes out into, quote unquote, the real world again, and all of a sudden her car starts acting up, it's like, okay, we have just elevated the stakes so much in this. It is not a haunted house film. Now it is a haunted Barbara Hershey film. Something is going on that this entity is stalking her so it has gone beyond the bedroom into the rest of the world and that's you know after she crashes her car that's where we get uh dr snyderman who's played by ron silver the ever evil ron silver like i know that he's being a nice guy in this for the most part but 
he always strikes me as up to something. He's so duplicitous in his looks and just the way that he speaks and everything. He was one of the best villains, you know, R.I.P. Ron Silver, but he was one of the best villains that has ever been on screen. Yeah, he was in, uh, uh, what's that, Jamie Lee Curtis film, uh, Blue Steel. Blue Steel, yes. Uh, yeah, and uh, he was, I, I had originally seen him in a, a really weird movie to, to begin here, Ron Silver uh, Festival. I saw Married to It when I was a, when I was a kid, I think, on television. Uh, where he's married to Sybil uh, Shepard. It's kind of this like middle agey romantic comedy about three couples and everything. And it's probably Ron Silver is least villainous, but still kind of the most uh, hot and bothered and definitely the most uh, grouchy character uh, on on uh, on display there. Uh, also in Carpo Talks, he's you know kind of this this uh, uh, lovable schnook, but still you. You get the sense that there's this there's this kind of snark underneath, um, and and I, and I think in this the, his part as as a, a doctor uh, doctor Snyder might have might have read better uh, in terms of him being a little more uh, sympathetic than Ron Silver actually played it, uh, because I think Ron Silver, uh, despite whatever lines he's given, can help to just with the just with the the. This penetratingly, like kind of like a um, condescending gaze that he has. It's almost like he can't help but like objectify her in a in a, in a way, even though he he's coming off as this as, as a kind of like uh, um, you know trying to help her face uh, these these demons. You know, he he sees it as something that's all completely in her head and something that's all you know uh, it's all kind of neurosis, and he's like. Accusing her of having designs on uh, sexual designs on her own son, and kind of getting to the bottom of like her her, her father's kind of uh, uh, abuse towards her, his her father's sexual abuse towards her, and it does, the way that he does it though, that's kind of like you know he makes you, and then by the time there's that really like unflattering close up, in his final appeal when when she's in the gymnasium, and uh, um, and uh, you know there's this. The camera's so close, and it's like it's like all all warts and all. If, 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 if there's never a better time to use that that expression, but like, like I've never seen such a cl- uh, close up uh, that's that's as close as that on a on an, an, an anamorphic uh, widescreen uh, size like in a two three five frame. I mean, I've never seen a close up that's like that intense and that that well close. I guess you know. And uh, it's, it, 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 it doesn't make him uh, a very, it doesn't give him uh, a, a very flattering appearance, I guess. People who listen to the show know how I feel about Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson. But I have to say, despite it being Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson, probably one of my favorite Ron Silver appearances roles ever was when Ron Silver played Ron Silver in Heat Vision and Jack, which was this kind of, I don't know if it's true that it's a failed pilot because it just seems too perfect and I can't see them doing more episodes of it, but this amazing show about Jack Black, again, not necessarily one of my favorite people, but Jack Black with a talking motorcycle going on adventures from town to town and fighting an evil Ron Silver was just uh, it, it, you. If you haven't seen it yet, you definitely owe it to yourself to check that out. Three, two, one. 
Jack Austin, astronaut. Exposed to inappropriate levels of solar energy. Sunlight makes him the world's smartest man. I know everything! I want that brain taken out. Heat Vision, the motorcycle with the mind of Jack's unemployed roommate. Together they run for their lives, blocked at every turn by adventure. So I talked about the Dutch angles and how I didn't really necessarily notice them the first time. And I noticed the second time that I watched it, more of the diopter shots that you're talking about. But what I really noticed the first time through was how many mirrors there are in this film. There are mirrors everywhere. Mirrors definitely play an important role in one part that we'll talk about, but I noticed it the most with this bathroom scene, which to me was the most horrific rape of the entire film. I think it was when her arms get thrown up above her head and she's being taken that way. And it was just, it's not a movie for the squeamish. And this is definitely for me, the, the scene that pushed the most buttons. Yes. I mean, also because at that point it's like how, how many more times are we going to have to see her go through this before this movie, you know, before uh, we kind of go in another direction of, uh, of, you know, actually, you know, it's almost like the, uh, I mean, and there are plenty, I think there are many, a number of other uh, incidents where she's attacked uh, after that. But yeah, that one is pretty horrific because I think it's, uh, that's the point in the movie where I think a lot of people in the audience is like, Oh shit, not again. This is, this is are we going to really go through this again? And then, and then not, not only that, but really like, that's, that's, I think the one where she goes into the doctor later and says that it felt like there were two little ones that were holding my feet down and, uh, and, and whatnot. So yeah, so she, and, and that's, she gets the worst, I think, bruises from that as well. But yeah, that, it's, it's a point in the movie where it's just like, can it get any worse? And then it does. And, you know, you talked about the way that Ron Silver is kind of blowing her off in this. And I will. I, I can empathize with Ron Silver in a lot of ways when it comes to if I was sitting in his chair at his doctor's office and this woman comes in and starts talking about how this invisible being is raping her over and over again. I'm a psychiatrist, you know, to me, you know, I'm a hammer and everything looks like nails, right? So she comes in with this problem. I'm going to try to solve it in the best way that I can via psychiatry or psychology. I think he's a psychiatrist, though. But what really gets me, the scene that turns my stomach is when she's there with all of the psychiatrists, the whole group from this hospital that she's been going to, tells her little story she leaves and they start basically playing like a parlor game is how I saw it, where they start going through and connecting all of these dots in what is probably, you know, a, a typical way where it's like, well, she had problems with her father. She married way too early. The second guy she married was as old as her father. And, you know, just going through and explaining everything about her, you know, to me, I don't know, Rob, it kind of felt like uh, the way that you and I sometimes, especially me, go through a movie and like, well, of course it's because of this. And just we try to connect those dots as well. The other thing that when I was watching that scene, 
puts this division down. And I was, you know, I haven't had enough time to go over this film over and over again a couple of times. So I can kind of be of two minds on this and see it as a sort of, and I use it in the in the smallest sense of it, a documentary aspect of how medical professionals thought about women in that era in which, you know, they didn't necessarily give them the equal footing. Like, for example, if it was a man who had a similar problem, would they have gone through all this stuff? Um, and then the other thing that we could see is maybe it is a commentary on that same sort of, you know, um, treating women as second-class citizens in that way and sort of trying to get into all of these aspects and the whole idea of psychological issues being related to, you know, sexual repression and the, you know, the use of the term hysteria, of course, is a, a very loaded word um, to use with a woman because it means, what is it, like haunted womb or something like that. And, of course, yes. it's all, you know, feminine related because no man would have that problem. He would just be crazy or schizophrenic. Right. The cure for hysteria, cure in quotation marks, was basically taking a massager and masturbating a woman to orgasm. And that was like how you relieved hysteria back in the day. And I know that you know, you're know you very new savvy. Do you remember that whole blow up around the OJ trial when Johnny Cochran called Marsha Clark hysterical? No, I don't necessarily remember that. I mean... Oh man, it was I, I kind of followed it, but then again, I was still in high school, so I wasn't paying too close of attention. We, we certainly aren't going to yell at your honor and become hysterical. Uh, we would. Uh, I, I just I point out that characterization. Okay. Well, that kind of personal attack is very improper and inappropriate. The court knows that it was simply advocacy. I'm not yelling at anyone. And for Mr. Cochran to make that kind of sexist remark, hysterical, I take great umbrage at it. And I think the court should not countenance that kind of behavior. I don't. She finished. It was such a clusterfuck. It was just the yeah, that was where I learned the term hysteria because of the that was kind of like the beginning of butthurt culture where it was just like I should be offended because of the way that somebody spoke to me or this particular word that they used, and it was wrong of Johnny Cochran to call Marsha Clark hysterical. But it was also wrong the way that the media just blew up and was like, oh, my God, that is so sexist because hysteria means this and that and the other thing. And it was just like, yeah, but hysterical has kind of gone into the common common parlance. It just means, you know, crazy or oh, high strung or these kind of things. But they were taking it all the way back to Freud. And it was just like, wow, you guys are giving me an education in Freud, which I appreciate. But this seems a little overblown. But, you know, mm -hmm. everything with that trial was overblown. Well, there's a lot of words that are in the culture that come from not-so-nice places that have kind of moved on to become, I don't want to say acceptable, but more acceptable than most people probably realize their origins. Right. Yeah, I, I always feel gypped when people talk about that. Exactly. So it's around this point where, to me, the, the shit really gets real. And this is when we have a lot of stuff all happening at the same time. We've got the introduction of Jerry, who, again, has been this kind of mystery figure. We've heard about Jerry, but we've never seen him until now. And Alex Rocco shows up, so that's great. We get... Dr. Schneiderman explaining, quote unquote, to Barbara Hershey's character what 
uh, her feelings might be coming from. And it's this thing, you know, she has talked about, you know, the, um, you mentioned the whole idea of her legs being held down during that, that one rape. And so now she's describing the rapist as one big one and two little ones. And she, t- and the doctor takes that and applies that to her own family where you've got the one son who's tall. He's becoming a man. He's got to be at least 16, if not more. And the two little girls. And so now it just, the zap goes on to Carla's head. She is just, you know, that's the last time she sees Dr. Schneiderman in a professional setting because because she just loses her shit because she does not want to think about you know this this kind of implied incestuous relationship that she's having with her son she just does not want to have this at all and she just cannot handle that but i find it very funny that this is around the same time that to me she gets uh raped during her sleep and she finally has an orgasm. This is the first orgasm, at least in the book anyway, this is the first orgasm that she has ever had, and it is courtesy of this spirit. And I think that this is around the time, and I wish that I could have gotten my hands on the screenplay for this, because there is a deleted scene in here where Carla has a dream that has some imagery of her son, and I want to say that it's right around this point, because she ends up having this orgasm from the ghost wakes up and her son comes in and says, you know, what's going on? And she just goes fucking ballistic. You know, just get out, get out. She's screaming at him. And I was just like, Oh yeah, that could have been the moment where she was dreaming about her son and had an orgasm. Cause that's just, you know, th- there's a whole lot of stuff going on in this film when it comes to the, her sexuality and why that might be kind of pointed towards her son. Yeah, I actually can confirm that uh, that's where that scene originally would have gone, because uh, I, I did have access to the screenplay when I was writing my book, and uh, there would have been uh, flash cuts, I guess, placed in uh, among this among the uh, the scene where it, it, it's also the scene where uh, her breasts are fondled by the invisible hands, which is in the exact same scene in the movie uh, in which she has her uh, the orgasm. Uh, and, uh, you know, yeah, so that, there, uh, and, and actually what's interesting is that I can't get, uh, a confirmation from anyone in terms of, in terms of whether that scene was shot. Uh, David Labiosa says it was, uh, Sydney is adamant in saying that it was never even shot. So I don't know, I don't know what, uh, what the whole, uh, back, back, uh, you know, what the, what the, uh, real, you know, true story is there. Because uh, uh, it's it's his testimony that yes we uh, we did shoot it and it's, it's, it's the director's testimony that no we you know, we never even touched it because uh, it was just like too messy didn't want to really get into that and, and it's enough that that's intimated by the doctor uh, and and, you, and uh, actually when you were talking about the uh, um, hysteria before um, uh, as I was beginning to talk about earlier the the idea of uh, of the title I think comes into play where the entity becomes both uh, that which is uh, raping and ravaging her and, and what she's made to be by, by and, and, and Mike, you actually used the term that I like a great deal, uh, these the psychiatrists playing parlor games uh, and trying to diagnose uh, based, on, based on privileged biographical information about like, where, where this possibly might be coming from in her own mind. So, uh, and, then, and then ultimately, by the time that we're in the, in the final stretch of the movie, 
where she's in uh, in, a, in a house that's been uh, or in a gymnasium that's been remade as her own house. She's kind of like a glorified lab rat. I mean, it's like you know, she and she's very much she's being observed from uh, from an aerial view, very much like a, an actual scientific lab rat. So it's almost like she's being made into an entity herself, where she's where these psychiatrists are kind of using uh, uh, using her life, which is which is a real thing, and, and oftentimes doctors can dehumanize their their subjects. And this is a classical kind of uh, complex here, but that they can they can use their their patients and uh, and their subjects in order to kind of uh, um, you know uh, to, to use your term again play these parlor games and depend to be like oh yeah this is fun maybe it's the best father maybe it's and then like also as a doctor and the way that he approaches Carla about like your son is a very handsome boy. And and that's when she kind of loses it because it's not exactly he's not being at all delicate about it. Um, so it's I know it's really it's really interesting that to me and uh, the, the, the title itself is kind of a double entendre, it's a double meaning because uh, she's Carla is kind of made into an entity where she's no longer made to be uh, human by either the 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 formal you know demon entity or the or the doctors that are that are treating her or even the parapsychologists that are that are treating her you know they're also treating her as a kind of an object uh you know by which they can prove their their you know hypotheses or their or their um you know their field of of study or to to verify it or to you know justify it the other thing that's in here and um, sort of around this whole thing with the doctor and um, sort of interests in that way is a feeling that I had, and I think it's an implication, not a direct um, statement by the filmmaker, is that at times I get the feeling that the Ron Silver character kind of wants to date her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I would agree. Yeah. Yeah, as he gets more involved with her, he gets more um, interested in her. And yeah, then he feels very threatened when she stops seeing him and starts seeing these two parapsychologists, these uh, and two parapsychologists, men, and then their mentor, who's a woman. And uh, you're totally right, uh, Daniel, when it comes to this whole idea of recreating her house in this gymnasium, which to me is one of the most extreme things. But they have this whole thing about. Um, how they have to be so precise with the science. Like they are kind of the opposite of the Ron Silver character when it comes to, you know, oh, well, this and this and this, they add up to be this other thing. And hey, case closed. That's it. You know, give her some volume and she'll be all set. Whereas they are so super scientific and they have to do that to kind of cover their asses when it comes to anything, you know, outside of the, the realm of, of normalcy, of, of uh, in, in other dimensions, this kind of stuff. <laughs> Which is funny to me that they're the more scientific than the psychiatrist. But there's that moment where the facade slips a little bit when they have recreated her house inside this gymnasium. But they didn't put the little girl's beds in the right place. And when she brings that to their attention, it's just like, oh, well, yeah, whatever, not important. 
And it's like, well, it, come on, guys. If you're trying to be so above board with all of this stuff, shouldn't you take a little bit more care and actually put things where they need to be? So that was a really kind of an odd moment for me. And then also that uh, we're a few years prior to Ghostbusters in this uh, era right now. and But these guys, they want to bust this ghost. They have this whole setup with liquid hydrogen where they're going to freeze the ghost and capture it um which might be one of the worst plans ever just because the spirit (laughs) they know how powerful this spirit is and it eventually starts like taking out these tanks and you know ruining everything so it really doesn't pan out to be as 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 good of a plan as they probably had hoped yeah, and, and uh, uh, I mean, you know, a lot of it's done uh, in a rather haphazard, uh, uh, slapdash manner, uh, as well because uh, they are trying to be very uh, as scrupulous, as you said, in the, in the detail, because their 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 field is going to be the most that's that's under under uh, uh, attack by the uh, the more uh, uh, straight laced uh, uh, psychology department, and, and it is almost like. Uh, like Ron Ron Silver's character feels dumped uh, in, in a way that a that a partner or lover would when uh, when she joins the uh, joins the, the you know the company of these parapsychologists. It is like a, it is like oh yeah I, I left one one boyfriend or whatever for another. I think there very much is like a, you know because oftentimes I think when Ron Silver's character is uh, commiserating with with the two uh, male parapsychologists, there's kind of like this. Uh, um, I hesitate to use the word cockfight, but it's, it's like you know, it's it's really like contentious, and it's very like they have no qualms about just like letting the other have it, and and kind of like rising to the top of the of the masculinity uh, you know spectrum and wanting to fight for her, uh, for for kind of like dominion over her, and using the this uh, her as an object. And what's interesting is the the uh, also the the Time Out London uh, review. Um, which I quote in the book is like actually one of my favorite reviews of the film mentions this whole uh, laboratory object aspect of, uh, of when when she becomes kind of a lab rat. Um, and it, the the critic here writes the, the film's men are so uniformly creepy and the terror so strong and, and sympathetic that apart from a couple unpleasant moments, the story often seems less like a horror like like horror than feminist parable, especially when Hershey is reduced to a laboratory object with her home recreated in, in the uh, psychology department. None of this may be intended, of course, but it goes to show that commercial movies sometimes hit spots that more intentionally didactic efforts cannot reach, um, which, I, which I agree with. And, and, I, and uh, I, I do think it was intended because in talking with Sydney about it, um, there, there was in, uh, 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 in the sense that, in some ways, this is totally and an, uh, assailable, easily attackable concept for a film, and and the whole question is like, how are we going to do this? And uh, and that's actually, I guess, the original drafts of the script. Um, there were there had been there had been a lot of doubts uh, centered on that because it was actually originally a vehicle for for Roman Polanski. Uh, that was tailored by uh, Harold Schneider, who had just come from uh, producing Days of Heaven. So the idea was, like, how are we going to make this work? How, how is this going to function and not just be this totally sexist, uh, you know, uh, exploitation film? Well, one of the things that Sidney told Stephen Burem 
was, uh, you know, he said that, well, the script of the film isn't, is, needs a lot of work. And Cindy, uh, the very first thing that he told the, the director of photography, he said, we're going to technique the shit out of it, so don't worry. So the idea was that, you know, okay, we're going to make this a big style piece, because even before the first attack, they're, they're very eloquent uh, camera moves. Like, there, there's one outside the window. Even before we have the sense that there's something that's about to happen, there's, a, there's kind of like a, um, a prescient kind of camera that's kind of like out, outside, almost like it's this leering presence. Um, so there's a lot going on there in terms of like, uh, you know, making her seem very much the victim, but ultimately she, she rises above uh, uh, that. And then it's, it, it, it put a lot of stock in Hershey's performance in the, in the role, uh, because I think that she's largely responsible for, and, and she actually got the best uh, reviews of, of any, any aspect of the film. Because I think everyone was shocked. I think Danny Peary in his book, uh, Alternate Oscars, he named uh, uh, Barbara Hershey uh, in, in, uh, in the entity as one of the best performances of, uh, I think in that book he named it as 83, because that's when the wide release of the film happened. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it lies in Hershey's delivery of a very difficult uh, uh, performance. I mean, and, and, and you know, yeah, imagine yourself as an actress going in. Uh, going through the motions of a, of a role like this. And it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, you're going to be, you know, raped and ravaged, and there's going to be, they're going to be a nude scene, and you're going to be, your, their breasts are going to be fondled by invisible hands. And uh, it's, not, it's not an easy proposition for an actress to swallow. I can't imagine even considering it. But, uh, and the, there, there were actresses who were approached for it, who, uh, um, who obviously wound up not uh, taking it uh, for and you know, Jane Fonda being one of them. You can only imagine, you know, Jane Fonda just being totally offended by it. Uh, Joe Clayberg was approached. Bette Midler was approached, and uh, Sally Field. And Hershey, I guess, was the only one who even considered it, and uh, ultimately she wound up doing it. And uh, I think even now today, it's, it's heralded as one of her best performances. The scene of her finally kind of getting together with Jerry, you know, there was implied sex earlier on, but now Jerry's back and it looks like they're going to become a couple. And that's when the entity comes back in. And that scene of her, when he opens up the door and she's there, just birthday suit and the, the hand effect is going crazy on her breasts. And she's just there pleading for him to help her. That is, is the moment where I'm just like the bravery of her performance is just remarkable. I, I was just dumbstruck by how great that scene was. And then if then to carry on with that, you know, Jerry ends up attacking the ghost and, you know, basically attacking her, the son comes running in, attacks Jerry. Next thing we know, we're at the hospital and Jerry, the, the Alex Rocco's performance there, talking about how he could handle so many things, but he just can't handle what's happening with her now. And we know that that is the end of Jerry in her life. And it was just, it really just, you know, tore the heart out of me. You know, yeah, because he's kind of this uh, um, kind of transitory presence in her life. Uh, she, he's in and out and he's constantly, you know, uh, as you mentioned earlier, he's, he's alluded to a great deal. But uh, and then when he finally appears, and uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's, it almost seems not quite like a case of neglect, but almost like I don't know. But and then and then when he finally says, "I could handle cancer, I could handle anything," but this is 
something else completely. And uh, and then ultimately, I think in in in, in, uh, in any other um, version of the movie, it would have. Uh, I think it would have crippled the, the you know the character, and ultimately she just would have kind of uh, um, left herself in the in the hands of fate without, without any fight or without any kind of like. You know, I think she she would have easily given up. Where I think Hershey's character does remain. Uh, to the to as, as much ex- extent as possible, uh, I think self determining and 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 uh, and dealing with the problem and, and the way that she feels is appropriate. And, and that the IE going to the parapsychologist r- rather than the psychologist and not caving into uh, you know this kind of uh, masculinity kind of uh, struggle between the you know the two groups. She she's allowed to choose. Where I think I, I think if in any other version of the movie after Alex Rocco left, I think she, she would have been more of a of a broken character and would have just kind of threw her hands up and said oh, whatever. Um, I'm you know I'm ready to to give it in now. She's still being pulled one side and the other, the science and the magic, the the psychology and the parapsychology, or maybe it's reversed. The the parapsychology is the science and the psychology is the magic. I mean, this film doesn't have a whole lot of great things to say about psychology or psychiatry, I'm sorry. And it's interesting that she ultimately ends up with no one that the end. Well, I, I take it back. I take it back. What she ultimately ends up with is the entity. You know, we have her at the house. You know, I like that she just kind of wanders off from. You know, the, they try to freeze the ghost and all this, and she wanders back home, or that's how it looks like as she's going into her house. The door closes. And I don't know if you guys could hear this, but to me, and maybe it's just because I read the book, when the door closes, that ghost says to her. It's in the movie, yeah, that's for sure. It's it's an undertone, but it's there. And and, and also, like, when when Ron Silver's character goes into that kind of uh, uh, gymnasium setup, she she kind of uh, just gives him the cold shoulder, turns him down, and says, go away. Uh, whereas, whereas I think, uh, as I was saying, in, in any other movie, she would have just said, "I don't know, I don't know." She, she would have just been kind of this rag doll that that was being, uh, you know, is where, where I think she's she's able to assert herself. And I think her line is, "I don't want to make that contact." When he says, "You and I can make that contact," is I think is uh, Ron, Ron Silver's line when he's trying to get her to to come out of this uh, uh, situation and into the kind of safety, quote unquote, of the psychiatric approach and she says I don't want to make that contact so she's very much I think still in control even though yeah yeah there there is this kind of power play for for dominion over her but I think I think she is determining what happens to her and that end where you know the door slams on her and you think that's it that the entity is now just going to you know kill her or rape her to death or whatever is going to happen there but she goes over to the door is able to open it go outside and there's her family and then that bizarro scroll at the end where it talks about how what we just witnessed was based on a true case and the attacks continued though they happened less and less over the years and basically it's like and they lived happily ever after is almost the sense that I got from that ending I think another critic called it the the ultimate uh, movie parable about the the struggle of, of the sexual underclass, uh, and that uh, it's—you it, almost could take away from the end. It's like, 
oh yeah, this is business as usual, and yeah, we're 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 we're, de- we're depicting it in the classic cinematic notion as oh yeah, this is the happy ending with the crane shot and they're driving off into the horizon and and one we have this little title scroll, but you know in a way it's just like you know this is this is uh, just you know it is for uh, society business as usual. This is just like a woman, another woman being exploited. She's going about you know she's she's heading off into a new new future, but she's going to be met with continued uh, uh, harassment by the by the entity, as well as most likely uh, this uh, continued uh, um, tug of war between. Uh, how to how how the the male how the male dominated treatment fields will treat her I guess you know I, I, it's, so I think it also it I kind of I rather ironically because uh, I think there is an irony there and, and you're saying it looks like a happy ending I think there's an irony to the, the way that that's depicted because ultimately you know yeah happy ended happy ending in a sense but there's an irony there just like you know yeah well this is just the way it is and uh, riding off into the sunset in, in the cycle. It's just going to continue, most likely. Well, you mentioned the underclass, and it's no coincidence here that that we see that opening, taking us all the way back to the opening, where she's working the one job, she's taking the typing class, she's trying to better herself. Her name in the film is Carla Moran, but in the book it's Carlotta, which is much more ethnic. She is this Hispanic or Latina woman living there, and you get the sense a lot of just how tight everything is, and also with Jerry. Jerry uh, is also a uh, Latino in the, the book, and Alex Rocco doesn't necessarily look Latino to me, but really... It's this whole idea of like, because some people might watch this movie and say, well, why doesn't she just leave the house? You know, it reminds me of our conversation last week, Rob, where it was just like, well, why doesn't Liza sell the hotel and go on from the beyond? And there's a reason because for Liza in the beyond, that was her one big chance. And with Carla, she can't sell the house. She is in dire straits. I mean, she is lucky if she makes the rent. And so it is really, you know, talking about underclass, she is that oppressed underclass in here because she's a woman, because she's Latina, because she's poor. She is, you know, there's so many things. The deck is definitely stacked against her. I want to introduce the interviews here and we tried like hell to get a couple folks for this particular episode one of them we actually talked a little bit to barbara hershey's person had to explain what a podcast was which is usually not a good sign but managed to explain what a podcast was you know calling it an internet radio show and unfortunately i haven't heard back from her as of the date of this recording uh i don't think that we're going to have an uh, an interview with her yeah, she, uh, according to uh, Sydney and in my own travails, trying to get her to talk uh, for the book, um, she was probably by far the hardest person to to nail down. And uh, once, and uh, I mean, ultimately, it, it got to the point where it, it, Sydney just like, forget it. Uh, I can, I can maybe connect you with uh, uh, someone else. And, and then, but, but, the, but the point is that she doesn't like uh, that kind of attention. And uh, even though. She has been interviewed over the years, uh, and uh, uh, mostly in the 80s. I think she she entered into a blackout with this kind of stuff, I think, in the 90s. But um, she did uh, speak about her experience on this film. I think it was in the late 80s, and I'm trying to find the quote here in the book, where I think she was, uh, she was confronted about uh, um, 
kind of the outcry because uh, the, the, the film was met with protests uh, by women's groups largely in England, uh, and uh, and she uh, responded to it in '86, uh, and she said, "I resent being put in the position of uh, defending the film. We worked really hard not to make it uh, exploitative. Rape is one of the ugliest, if not the ugliest, thing that can happen to someone. It's murder of a sort. I have no answer for those people who are offended." They're right, but I don't think our intention was to uh, exploit the, the subject or the result. Truly, I don't. I think we did very well with it. From the horse's mouth, if, you know, I hope she doesn't mind being called a horse. But she, I think she holds a generally positive outlook on the film, but I, I don't think... She, I, I, I don't really even recall seeing her talking about not just this film, but really any other film after a certain point. I think even Black Swan you would have uh, maybe expected her to do some press for that film, but I can't recall anyone talking to Barbara Hershey uh, around the release of that film, which was a big movie back uh, like five years ago. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know what's going on. If, if, like, Gene Hackman, she just gives, like, a total, you know, kind of brush off to people who want to do interviews, but, yeah, that's that's what I gather. Well, we tried her. Uh, I've also, since the end of March, I've been trying to get a hold of Frank DeFolita, who was the author of the original book and then wrote the screenplay. And uh, the only way I was able to get a kind of a contact with him was through his website. And his website person is definitely very defensive when it comes to setting up anything with Frank. And I got a series of emails every few months I would ask, you know, how about now? How about now? And I got a whole thing of like, you know, oh, um, it, it probably won't work with his schedule. And then the next time I got a, well, he's busy with the plans of Fox to remake the entity. And then and the next one I got was um, uh, his health has been failing in recent months. I'm unable to get a hold of him by phone, which uh, might mean that he's uh, hard of hearing. Uh, so, yeah, it was basically just like one brush off after another. But it was like, OK, whatever. At least I tried. So let's go ahead and play back the interviews that we did manage to get. So I'm just going to say these names right now. And if uh, they drop out between now and the time that this episode goes live, I'll just go ahead and bleep them out. You're going to hear some interviews here from David Labiosa and Peter Cherkoski. And we'll be right back after these brief messages. Hey, it's the Schwarzenegger. I need your clothes, your boots, and your podcast device. Why? Because this October, on the Films and Swearing Movie Podcast, the boys will be reviewing all five Terminator movies! Yes! All five! Uh, even Rise of the Machines. Talk to the hand and search Films and Swearing on your podcast apps, iTunes, Skynet, and Stitcher Radio. Or visit filmsandswearing.com. If not, consider it a divorce. That's fucking Torico. Fuck you, asshole. Then you come to the right place. My name is Gary and I am your guide to Cinema Beef Podcast. Every episode we not only deliver film reviews, we also dismantle some of your favorite and most hated films. Sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Hey, 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 you shut your face! If we want to hear you talk, I will shove my arm up your ass and work your mouth like a puppet! 
Alright, calm down, calm down. Every show I hope to have a new co-host, podcasters, listeners alike. That's right, I'm talking to you people. I take all comers. Oh, slapped. That's not very nice. The only rules, well, let's ask the best cooler in the business. All you have to do is follow three simple rules. One, never underestimate your opponent. Expect the unexpected. Two, take it outside. Never start anything inside the bar unless it's absolutely necessary. Three, be nice. So join the insanity and please vent your frustrations. I'm available on TalkShoe, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. Remember, here at the Sin Beef Podcast, if you got beef, I've got the grinder. Hey, Iris, you know what we should do? We should try to get Fred Olin Ray on the show. Why would he want to come on our show? Hi, this is Fred Olin Ray, and you're listening to the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Count Podcast. Okay, what about Olaf Ittenbach, Germany's Splatter King? Ah, uh, that'd be great, but I doubt he speaks any English. I'm Olaf Ittenbach, and you're listening to the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Count Podcast. What about the director of Blood Sucking Freaks? Joel M. Reed. Isn't he dead? This is Joel M. Reed, and you're listening to Badass Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. No, Iris, he's not. Hello, I'm Mike, host to the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. And I'm Iris, co-host of the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. Every week in I, Iris, discuss lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. Mike and I discuss films like The Black Godfather, The Beast That Killed Women, and Biozombie, to name just a few. And every now and then, we get to speak with the people behind all the films we love to talk about. Okay, how about this, Mike? Let's get Andy Sidaris on the show and talk girls, guns, and G-strings. Um, yeah, Iris, he's actually really dead, but we did manage to talk to his wife, Arlene, way back in episode 20. Well, I suppose that's the next best thing. Yeah, I suppose so. So the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts podcast can be found on iTunes, on Stitcher's Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. Just search for the BB&BC podcast to start listening today. You can also visit the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Okay, Iris, did you keep track of the boob and body counts on the film we're discussing next week? Uh, no, I thought you were doing that this week. No, I'm no, I no, uh-uh. no. I've seen this. Uh, boy, no, it we're was gonna have you. To, it was you. Uh, look, from now on, let's both do that. Okay, that sounds good. When you were growing up, did you always want to be an actor? Yes. What kind of got you into it? What what sparked that fire? Just because of the educational program that existed in the '60s in the Bronx, there was a lot of. Uh, um, good teachers and they had good programs back then even though it was the South Bronx uh, the schools were really good and there was a theater program even in kindergarten there was always uh, we always had chorus and and theater programs and I just gravitated towards that and uh, I was pretty much uh, my mom had me when she was 50 so my brothers were much older so I just watched a lot of TV and I was by my own a lot and my only outlet was school and and I just gravitated toward it. And uh, at first it was uh, uh, singing. I went a trip to London with the school choir, and that got me out of the Bronx for the first time. And and then uh, from there I, I you know took to guidance counselors, and they were like, you know, you maybe should try for performing arts high school if that's what you want to do. And I got an agent when I was about nine years old on my own because I just wanted 
to be on TV, and so I wrote a letter to the William Morris Agency, and they were like, we don't handle kids, but here's the name of somebody who does, and that manager had Irene Cara, and she was like, oh, you're a cute little Puerto Rican boy, and, you know, I'll sign you, so she signed me, and then while I signed with them, I got into performing arts, and then I got serious about acting, and I forgot all about singing, and, uh... I went to performing arts, and then I started studying around New York with a lot of, uh, I found out who the good acting teachers were, and so I started studying with them, and then uh, while I was in performing arts, I got like this big TV movie with a major actress called Colleen Dewhurst, so it was like the big deal, you know, in high school, because, you know, to get a job while you're still in school was a big deal, and then I was in high school around 1980, and that's when they made fame. We know Alan Parker came to the school and he made believe he was a custodian and we didn't know who he was. And next, they cast every, if you watch the movie, everybody in that like, was in my class because I graduated the year before. So I was up for the part of Ralph Garcia, the Puerto Rican kid, who was played by Barry Miller. So that was my big, big, most biggest disappointment in life because I really wanted that part. I was Puerto Rican. I was from the school. and But, you know, he was the son of the casting director, so it went to, to Barry Miller. And that was the year I did The Entity because we really shot it in 1980. And it came out in 83. So that was, like, the major year for me. It was 1980, yeah. I was, like, 17. So you got to learn that lesson early about nepotism. Oh, nepotism and racism, it's all come down on me hard. <laughs> no, I was just up for a major part in a, in a, in a new TV series for David, David E. Kelly. It was a recurring role, yeah, but I didn't get it. So it's still going on. Yeah, I constantly have to audition still, and, and uh, a lot of my friends from school don't even have to audition, you know. But it's never got to that point with me. Everything I've ever gotten, you know, I have to read for or meet somebody and go back three or four times. And it's, uh, and I'm 53 now, so it's, it's a little tiring. But it's part of the game. And, I, you know, for some people it changes. You know, you can sit back and feel all the offers. Because I went to school with Stephen Weber and Wesley Snipes. And I'm sure, that, you know, it still goes on. But on a different level, you know, just meetings. They don't have to read. And for me, auditioning is like a nightmare. I get very nervous, and I feel like I'm being judged. Once I'm on the set, it's no problem. I just did, you know, a few days on Days of Our Lives, and it's like, it's not a problem. I don't get nervous when I'm working. It's just when I'm auditioning. So um, sometimes I'm not the best auditioner. So what was that experience like uh, getting the entity? Obviously, you had to audition for that. Was there a lot of people that were up for that same role? Yeah, apparently they were they they were reading a lot of the blonde people, and um, they made an offer. I thought somebody else interviewed me a few months ago, and he's like, "Did you know you weren't the first first guy for the part?" <laughs> I said, "No, I didn't know that." I say, "I I don't forget who he said it was. Uh, some some white guy. I don't know." All I know is that they, they they were down to the wire, and I had done that TV movie like I just told you, right? And uh, I think the director saw it. He was like, fly him out from New York. and So that really helped open some doors. What was it? That was uh, Death Penalty? Right. Back then, there were only four channels. So, like, millions of people saw it. Now, today, you've got, you know, 200 channels. <laughs> so, yeah. 
so anyway, he, uh, he, I had just done the pilot for Falcon's Crest. Yeah, I was going to be a series regular on it, but I got fired. <laughs> so I was on my way back home. And the minute I got back, my agent's like, uh, Irene Kara's manager, she's like, oh, they want, they want you back in L.A. tonight. So I had to get back on the plane. She goes, because uh, for this movie, and, and so I met with Sid at his house, Sid Fury. He had a house in the Hollywood Hills, and I went up there right from the plane. And he's like, okay, I like you, and I want you to meet Barbara Hershey tomorrow morning. So I was like, okay. So I went to stay overnight with my agent in uh, Long Beach, because I was from the Bronx. I've only been out there to do the pilot. I, I didn't live out here at all. And so I met with Barbara Hershey, and she was like, I like him. And so apparently... um they had to shoot my scenes the next day, so they 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 um, they needed to make a decision right away because I guess they had seen a lot of people. And the the thing is that um, there was a part where I kind of have sex with my mother in the book, and it was supposed to be in the movie. And we shot the we shot the scene, and so they wanted like a boy that looked like a man, and I kind of had that quality. I was like a boy man because she kind of gets attracted to me when she gets uh, possessed by the devil. But they had to cut the because it was too racy. Yeah, we shot it and everything, and I was really upset. I, I called Sid an asshole. I said, you cut me out of the fucking movie. <laughs> I was all pissed off because <laughs> I was really happy. I was working out. I wanted to, to have me with my shirt off and everything. <laughs> so, I was so upset. <laughs> they cut a lot of my stuff out. I was so upset, yeah. I had some other scenes, too. Oh, really? What, do you remember what they were? Just some other stuff uh, that was in the book. What was that experience like for you? I mean, working with Barbara Hershey, you know, she was so well-known at the time. I mean, she's still well-known, but she was just so at the top of her game at the at that time. Well, the, the ignorance is bliss because, I, you know, being 16, 17, I didn't know anybody. So I didn't really know her, except I liked the way she looked a lot. <laughs> And uh, and then while I was doing the movie, I'm like, well, the stunt man had just come out. I was playing in the movies, so I went to go see it because I'm like working with her. So I went to go see that, and she was great in that. I said, Hey, Barbara, I went to go see your movie this weekend. She said, Oh, thanks, Dave. And uh, and then of course after the movie, then I started watching all her stuff, and then I figured out, Oh, okay, she's a major movie star. But uh, that happened to me a lot with a lot of people like Jane. I didn't know who she was when I did Falcon Crest. (laughs) It was because of her. I read with her, and the director goes, well, do you want him to do the part? And she goes, yeah, I like him. So it was pretty much because of her. She said yes. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Plus, we kind of looked alike at the time a little bit. More than the other people they were looking at, I think. I forget the guy's name. He was in The Outsiders or something like that. There were so many people in The Outsiders, I don't even want to hazard a guess. Yeah. What was that experience like work with, with Sidney Fury? He was great. He was just, uh, you know, the most directors that are, that are famous, uh, they cast good actors and they, they don't have to do much, you know, like telling them what to do. And most of them were very trusting, so he said very little. And most of it was just like, do less, you know. Don't overact, which is which is really good because if you don't tell that to most actors, that's what they'll do. 
And it's very easy to just say, do less, but a lot of them don't know to tell you to do less. And so you, they'll, they'll let you do more, do some crazy shit. And then, like in TV, I just did Days of Our Lives and there was no direction. And it was like, damn, he's letting these actors do some horrible shit, but they were going so fast that they didn't care. But, but you know, with, with movies, you have time, and Sid would just say, you know, I, like he did Lady Sings the Blues, which is my favorite movie, and I was like, how did you get that? I know us to be so good. And he's like, well, I just told her to do less, and then throw away the lines and make up your own lines. And so the whole movie was like the script, but then he told her to just improvise. And he goes, if you don't have an actor who's very experienced, that's what you do with children. You say, forget the lines, say something like the lines, but make it up yourself. We didn't do that, of course. And you can't do that on TV. It'll fucking kill you. you got to say it just the way it's written. That must have been very frustrating for you, this being one of your first big movie roles, and then the movie doesn't come out for, like, what, three years? Yeah, it really killed me, and then not getting fame. It was hard to kill myself. <laughs> You know, I had the whole build-up for my manager. You know, you're going to be on Falcon's Crest, and then you're going to do this movie, and then you're saying that you're going to be insane, but of course I didn't get fame. And then, like you said, all this shit didn't happen, so it was very devastating for me, <laughs> to say the least. I did a lot of theater instead, and then finally, I, I, around 86, I got so sick of the theater and no money that I came out to L.A., and I started making a lot of money doing episodics. But it was all like T.J. Hooker, Hunter. <laughs> oh, man. You name it, I was on it. I say it elsewhere. Hill Street Blues. I did it all. From the 80s to the 90s, all TV work. I did a couple, a couple of movies, but they were all low budget. I really liked you in Blood In, Blood Out. Yeah, that was all right, but I, I, I was very upset because I wanted one of the bigger parts, and I was up for the big part, and he gave it some. So I was a real bitch on the movie. <laughs> he said, what are you trying to ruin my movie for? <laughs> I didn't like that movie at all. I thought it was boring. It was like six hours long. They had to cut it to four. He thought he was making The Godfather Hispanic style. And it was six hours long. The movie studio told him to make it four. What was it like working on uh, Brown's Requiem? Well, that was good. It was out in Lancaster, very cold. I was just upset because my scenes were all in the dark. I'm like, wait a minute. You can only hear me. <laughs> I, was like, I was upset about that, too. <laughs> uh, but that guy was good, yeah. Uh, they got the lead. I forget his name. Uh, Michael Rooker? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a good actor. Can you tell me what it was like working on Seinfeld? It was interesting because... Um, they said, oh, you know, this episode's never going to see the light of day. Uh, this show's doomed. Everybody was like, forget it, you know, maybe we'll give you a tape of it, but don't expect to see it on TV. And so I'm okay, all right, whatever. And then uh, they put it on as a midsummer replacement. And then it became, like, number one. And and then, and then I ran into all the cast members, you know, at various times. I was like, oh, wow, your show that was going to be a big nothing turned out to be number one hit. And it's like, we're as surprised as you are because the network had told them that it was, you know, a flop. And they just didn't have anything to put on that summer. So they put on the repeats. Because when they put it on the first time on primetime, it had no ratings. So it was a very strange way it happened. And then to see them change, it was so nice, you know, during the 
during when I worked with them, and then I would run into them to see their personalities change. You know, like Michael Rich was like all buddy buddy with me, and then and then as the show got bigger and bigger, he got more and more aloof as I saw him throughout the years. But no, Jerry was always kind of funny. But uh, everybody, the nicest one, strangely enough, was Michael Richards to me, even though he turned out to be racist. <laughs> but Jerry was weird, and so was Julia Louise Dreyfus, uh, who's nice to me, uh, that little guy, Jason Alexander, he's nice, yeah. But I, used to, I knew him from New York. We used to see each other at auditions, my age. Yeah, it was weird for you to be playing a busboy, because you had to be, what, in your 30s at that point? Oh, yeah. You've been in over 50-some roles on television, and I know you've done a lot of stage work. What have been some of your your favorite things over the years? I did a TV movie for Hallmark Hall of Fame called American Story, where I had a lead with Kathleen Quinlan and Brad Johnson. And that was good. Back then, it was it was classy to do Hallmark. You know, it was on CBS. I was up for an Emmy nomination. And I had a big role, so it's always good when you have a big role. And he wasn't a stereotype. He was a soldier coming back from the war in the world 1942. So it was a period piece. We shot it in Dallas, so everybody got treated like a king. So that was good experience for me. And Sideful uh, uh, was good, only because I, I like doing the sitcoms. You know, I, I've done some other ones, but they never made it to air. There's some pilots, and I like it's like doing a play. But but you get to see it, so I like doing Seinfeld. But I, I've only done two other sitcoms, and what else? It's uh, it's a movie with C. Thomas Howell, which I had a lead in. Just uh, it's always good when you have a lead because you feel like you know you're really doing something. It's really hard to do small parts. It really is, because you have to sit around a lot. You feel like you're not really important enough, or you're not pivotal to the story. You know, you may get cut out, and the smaller your part, the, the bigger the chance you may get cut out. And the bigger your part, the less of a chance, because you're more in the story. So if they cut you out, they're cutting out the story. You know? So it's always good to have... I've always loved, tried to avoid going up for small parts. Even now, even though things are getting rough, I tell my agent, you know, I just rather to stay home than just do five lines, you know? At this point, I'm, you know, I can retire in two years, which I plan to do. Not retire, but at least get my pension and and not worry about money. And, you know, I've been doing this since I'm nine, and I, I don't think I need to be an extra at this point, you know? But these agents want to do it. They want to. They want you to go up with three and four lines, even though no matter what you've done in the past, they don't care. And so I have to, you know, you have to be a team player and, and go on what they want. But it's hard to say, you know, because you don't want to piss them off, and and, and then they don't want they don't want to send you out at all, because it's really, you know, it's it's a ball game, you know. There's so many small so many small parts for Hispanics. There are so many roles out there, and with the big parts are for twenty year olds and thirty year olds. It's always been that way. And then people my age, they want like Edward James Almos, people that have had hit movies behind their belt, and they'll do it for low money because they haven't worked in years. So people like you know Andy Garcia, and they're all out there. They're taking the parts that I might be up for even on TV shows, whereas before in the 80s, TV movie stars wouldn't do TV. 
So it's like everybody's got a demotion. The movie stars are doing TV, and then the working actors have to be extras. <laughs> and then now there's a big thing where um, when SAG merged with AFTRA, it's like everybody, all the actors got, a, all the working actors got a pay cut. And now they want us to do movies for free or like for $100 a day. And, and $100 a day was what they gave us if we were on location like for food. And then the salary would be at least 5000 a week or 10000 That would just be the minimum. But that was the 80s and 90s. Now, now they want you to, soon they're going to want us to pay just to be in something. I mean, that's the next step. Now, I'm not, it's no joke. And, uh... A lot of actors do it, you know, movies for free because you get the tape, and so you're able to make a good tape out of the movies and show people your work. So there's a benefit in doing the movie for free if you can get some good tape. Because, you know, as an actor, you constantly get older and older, and, like, I can't show people the entity. They don't want to see me when I'm 17. They want to see me when I'm 52. And so that, that tape for me now is no good. I can't use that anymore. I can't use any of that. And it pisses me off because all the stuff lately, you know, I don't want to even use. I don't want to show people me on Days of Our Lives. <laughs> so that's the last thing I did. It hasn't even come out yet. It's going to be on October 23rd. We can show them uh, Mega Piranha. Oh, yeah, that was a winner. I, I couldn't believe I even did that. I couldn't even believe I was in a movie. I was like, where's the camera? He showed me this little tiny thing. like It was looked like an iPhone. <laughs> I'm like, what? That's the camera? I said, holy crap, is this going to be on TV? Are you sure? They're like, it's going to be on TV. And I didn't believe them. I was like praying it wouldn't be. But it was. I thought Barry Williams was the best one, actually. The, Greg Brady was the one who didn't overact at all. Tiffany was so horrible. <laughs> and then, like I said, I love to overact. So he didn't even stop me. He was just like, scream away. Like, see what it said, David, stop screaming. What are you screaming about? I'm screaming about the piranha. <laughs> Holy shit, we shot it in four days. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's crazy. But you know what? I was like, be a team player. I've been spoiled before, and they didn't give me a dressing room or anything. <laughs> I had to share my dressing room with three other extras. And I'm like, I'm in with the extras? This is outrageous. But apparently... um Somebody else is going to play my part. And when he saw that he had to share the room with other people, he stormed off. And so I, at the time, I had the same agent as Tiffany. And he's like, we need you right now. Can you come right now? Right now? And I'm like, okay, I'll be there right now. And they put me in the room with three other guys. And I was like, what? I don't even go to the dressing room. Holy shit. And then the food is like rich crackers and peanut butter. <laughs> You had to bring your own outfit? No, thank God. I only had one outfit. It was that stupid army thing. But yeah, I don't even. I didn't even get $100 a day for that one. It was free. And then later, I got like $500 in the mail. Yeah, and then they showed the shit out of it. So somebody's making money, right? Not the actors, but that's how they do it now. They, it's just crazy. I mean, I, when I started out as, as, a, as a nine-year-old, I made more money. And, the, and I, five thousand dollars was the starting salary on a series regular. Like when I got Falcon's Crest, it was seven thousand five hundred a week, and that was nineteen seventy nine. So anyway, if you're a star though, like Wesley Snipes, I went to high school with him. I'm sure they're paying him more than that for his new show, The Player. 
You know, so if the thing is, the stars get the money, and then the working actors are the ones who get the pay cut. They got the money, and they'll give it to people they think are worth it. But now they have this whole new thing, IMBD Pro, and if you haven't worked in years, your scores go down, and now they don't even care about talent. They care about what your score is on IMBD Pro. And so if you're not even, if you're like below 49, they don't even, agents don't even want to see actors now. So it's all been reduced to numbers instead of like seeing an actor and see if there's some talent where agents used to go to see plays or even have actors come in and audition. They don't do that anymore. They just go by numbers, what you I, you know. And then they make exceptions, but only for the young. Of course, if you're 15, they don't expect you to have numbers because you're young. So anybody who's over 30 and they want to become an actor, it's impossible. We were uh, interviewing an actress a few weeks ago, and she was talking about how she got on Twitter just because the number of followers you have can kind of uh, affect whether you get roles or not. It has to do with talent at all or whether you've studied with, with the best teachers or, you know, you were in a play and got great reviews. I mean, that's really what matters and what's going to count on the set. But whatever, I don't care. I, I just don't understand it. I'm just, I'm old, I guess. I guess I'm just too old to understand. How did you get into filmmaking? Well, I've been a lover of cinema ever since I was a kid and, 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 and deeply interested and, uh, and fascinated by the medium, but I had no intention of, of making any kind of, of commercial movies, and I did not know avant-garde. I, I was raised in the countryside, and, and when I came to Vienna, I had the, was it was really good luck that I attended five lectures given by P. Adam Sidney here at the Austrian Film Museum, arranged by Peter Kubelka, the director of the Austrian Film Museum, founder and director, as you might know. So without having any idea what, what would expect me, just out of curiosity, I attended those lectures by the American historian P. Adam Sidney, Professor P. Adam Sidney, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, all of a sudden, I saw the best films of the new American cinema, and I saw an opportunity and a possibility to, to, to make films with low budget, with my own equipment, and basically doing what I wanted to. So that was in January 1978. I was... 19 years and a few weeks old, and, and the, in, in the following year, I went to Berlin, which was kind of the center, a cinema center within the German-speaking area of Europe, 
bought an equipment, Super 8 equipment, and started filming. And that was it. Now, you're primarily known as an experimental filmmaker. Is that still pretty much a good term, or do you prefer avant-garde filmmaker? What do you like to be called? <sighs> filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't like the term experimental filmmaking because it has a, uh, so a, a kind of a connotation like like experimenting, trying something uh, with uh, with um, results you can't really predict and stuff like that. So, avant-garde filmmaker is not very much better, but still it's better. And ever since I've been in the field, which is 35 years by now. As you know, there has this discussion going on about how to call it and and if there's a better term. But so far, nobody came up with a better term, so I stick with avant-garde filmmaking. Yeah, S- simply because it's a little bit better than experimental. But it's fine with me if somebody says you make experimental films. What is your approach when you take out a new project? How does, uh, how do you get your inspiration, and how do you kind of plan out everything? And I know that you plan out things. I know that you're not just experimenting with things. Well, normally what happens is that somebody offers me some footage. I rarely look for footage actively on my side. Normally it's really being offered to me, so I look at it and 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 I feel attracted or not. And if I feel attracted. I start watching it over and over and over again, making notes, and and at a certain point, ideas start to flow. As simple as that. It's it's really the trick. You you have to spend, you have to be willing to invest time, really huge amount of time, uh, watching footage, and and somehow in your brain it all comes together sooner or later. And that's it. I think the first piece of yours that I saw was Outer Space. How did that one come about? Well, that was a piece where I had the idea of making a a film where the materiality itself would play the main role, so to speak, in uh, the the material of film made visible with sprocket holes and and, and optical sound strip and, and scratches or whatever. And I did not know the entity, um, which was my found footage source material, which I used, finally used. But I had a description of of the film, a very short one, saying that um, it's a film about a woman being haunted by an invisible ghost. And the film was offered uh, for sale, $50, as far as I remember. So I... said to myself, let's give it a try, and, and I bought the film, invested those $50, and, and it was a kind of bingo, that's it. The idea right from the start was to replace the invisible ghost with the material, and work in that direction, and as you know, it worked out. What kind of technology do you use when it comes to creating your films? It's low, low, low tech. I mean, it, all I do is basically what I do is I take some uh, raw footage and on top of that raw footage, I place the found footage. And then I use some um, several different kinds of light sources like laser pointer in the case of outer space or dream work and flashlights. And and sometimes I use an, an Optical, also in photographic enlarger, 
as a light source, not as an enlarger, as a light source. That's it. Has the way that technology has changed over the years changed your approach to filmmaking? You mean technology worldwide? I mean, the technology that people are using nowadays to, to create uh, moving images? Yeah, like are you still utilizing the, the flashlights and the photo enlarger and those kind of things in your work? Are you doing more digital manipulation? No digital manipulations at all. None. None. Absolutely none. It's the same technique. I always invent a new technique, but it's always a darkroom technique. Uh, new masks, for example, like in the most recent film, the exquisite corpus, and a, a new way to 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 a new flashlight, so to speak, with a very specific kind of light. And yeah, it, I need that. It's, it's, it should always be a challenge on that side too. But no digital techniques. They talked about outer space and the kind of replacement of the ghost with the material itself. You went back to Sydney Fury's The Entity with DreamWork. What were you uh, trying to approach with that one? Uh, well, I started to work on outer space and within basically hours now, but this is as a, as a, within weeks, let's say, I, I discovered a new film, a different film footage within the entity which I could not use for the outer space simply because it did not fit my expectations or did not fit my concept which I mentioned before but instead having that woman falling asleep and having that erotic dream which which was a completely different story than, than outer space so, so basically what I did while I was working on outer space I already started to take out shots uh, which I knew that I would use later on for the next film dream work. The music plays such an important part for your films. How do you decide who you're going to work with and how you're going to work with the musician? Well, in the case of um, my first uh, contact printing darkroom film, Manufaktur, and in the case of Larivé, the first film of my Cinemascope trilogy, and in the case of Outer Space, I created the sound uh, uh, within, uh, in the darkroom simply by copying uh, the original optical soundtrack of, of the footage I'm using, but also collaging like, like I collage the pictures, also the soundtrack is collaged. I, sometimes I use the sync sound, and, but it's, it's mixed with um, uh, sound elements, particles from completely different parts of the, of the footage, of the original footage, the found footage. In Dreamwork, uh, I worked with an Iranian composer uh, for Dreamwork, um, and later on always with Dirk Schäfer, um, a German composer uh, whom I regard as being a genius when it comes to to soundtracks. And all of them, so to got or get um, sounds which I created in the darkroom while making the film, but without paying much attention to, to, to what it sounds like. And normally they use it as a source material for their own compositions. In the case of instructions for a light and sound machine, for example, uh, Dirk uh, um, created in the computer, by the way, tiny little loops which are slowly, slowly moving along, along the, the timeline of the film. So what we hear is a heavily altered uh, uh, soundtrack, uh, which came from 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 the, the darkroom, 
made in the darkroom. And the exquisite corpus, the recent one, which had its premiere in May at the Cannes Film Festival, he wanted to know which kind of music I was listening to while making the film in the dark room. Because sometimes, as if I'm not as of, uh, actively creating something, as of thinking what to do, but if I know what to do and just executing what I decided to do, I can lis listen to music in the dark room. And, and I had just briefly before I started working on the film, I had discovered exotica music. Normally, I'm into modern jazz and modern music in general, contemporary music, but exotica music highly fascinated me. Les Baxter, uh, Martin Denny, uh, uh, Milt Raskin, you name it. And so he got inspired by that um, habit of mine of listening to exotica music, as you can tell, when you hear that, when you see the film and hear the film. It would seem to me that being an avant-garde filmmaker is a very difficult and thankless kind of profession. Is that true, or am I just kind of uh, uh, coming at it from a, a narrative snobbery? No, I mean, if, if you're talking about money, you're perfectly right. I mean, it's difficult enough to survive as an avant-garde filmmaker, especially if you're not... If you're not teaching, I stopped teaching many years ago. It didn't pay enough and, and was too dem demanding. Uh, and it's not so easy to find a teaching job over here. Yes, but somehow I still uh, I survive. I mean, 57 years old and, 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 and I never worked for anything else. All, everything I did where I money from is somehow connected to, to film, writing, organizing, curating, whatever. So, yeah, but, but you, you don't get rich. That's true. That's for sure. You mentioned uh, the exquisite corpus. Uh, how did that one come about, and and uh, how was the premiere at Cannes? Well, uh, a, a wonderful experience, the premiere in Cannes, and 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 ever since we've been invited, the film has been invited to thirty festivals by now, and it's within four months, a little bit more than four months, and it's still going strong, of course. So so it's really the film is widely being appreciated. Um, and and the, originally I got five reels where it said on the reel Busby Berkeley and there was not a single frame of a Busby Berkeley film inside but all kind of totally weird stuff so from different films erotic films mainly so I decided to make a film The Exquisite Corpus based or in reference to The Exquisite Corpse technique of the surrealists the exquisite corpse is a technique where you either write a sentence or draw a drawing with several participants. You you agree on a certain structure of a sentence, like as a noun and verb and whatever, and you write your part, then you cover it, pass it on to another participant, he or she adds her part, covers it up, passes it on, and so and so forth. And the first sentence created with that technique was the exquisite corpse will drink the new wine and the exquisite corpse stuck to the whole technique as in it's, it's its name and in a similar way those drawings had been made are made you separate the body it's always a body in head and 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 uh, arms and and the main corpse legs and, and you draw your part, you cover it up, you pass it on. And that's what I, I kind of, of imitated with my different footage sources. Because normally 
I use one narrative film as my source. That's it. That's my found footage, and which I use to create a new film, completely new story. In that case, for the very first time, I use different film, film sources in reference to the, the surrealist technique, and also as a film about... Um, the exquisite corpus which analog cinema is nowadays. It's it's delicious, it's exquisite, but and it's a corpus as opposed to digital moving images somehow. So that was it. You talked about when you were a young man seeing some of these experimental or avant-garde films and the way that it really kind of changed your approach to what film could be. Who are some of the filmmakers that you saw or have seen over the years that you really admire? Well, all the great names from the new American cinema to begin with, like those I had seen during the lectures like Michael Snow, also the Austrian filmmaker Peter Kubelke, of course, I deeply admire uh, Pat O'Neill and his work, uh, Bruce Bailey, some of the works of Bruce Bailey. Um, well, there are many, but also in the field of narrative filmmaking. I mean, I, I, I love narrative films, and, and there are many directors like the Coen Brothers or Woody Allen. It's not very original, but <laughs> it's the way I see it. Robert Oldman, I don't know, uh, Billy Wilder, Chakta D. Shakti is my my god, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. So you're not a big Adam Sandler fan? Uh, n- not really. No, no. It's okay. <laughs> not really. No, no. But I, I, I like comedies. Comedies is my favorite genre within narrative filmmakings. When you're working on stuff, are you working pretty much one project at a time, or do you have several irons in the fire? Always one pro- project at, at, at a time. Never more. But but it's always the same. When I come to when I come to a close, when when the ending is is, is approaching, I all of a sudden get the idea for the next film. talking about the entity and mike of course you're the one who has the ability to read uh i of course uh um am handicapped in that way or uh, i can read but i read very slowly as uh, listeners of the show know and uh you've talked a little bit in the first half of the show about the book and was wondering uh, if you could shed some more light on the differences Sure, sure. I mean, the book is, it's a long book. It took me a long time to read it. It, It's, uh, I want to say about 400 pages. It was a pretty thick book, and it unfortunately had a very embarrassing cover. So as I was walking around the streets of Toronto a few weeks back, I felt very bad to have this book with this woman in the throes of passion uh, on either side of the cover. So it wasn't even like I could just kind of flick to the back. Harlequin romance novel kind of cover? No, not that bad, but it was it was just not that good either. Obviously, in a 400-page book, you're going to get a lot more backstory. I got a whole lot of backstory about her first husband. 
about the second husband. And the second husband's story was interesting because as you're reading the book, like they put you in that position where you are with her throughout these attacks. And it is very much, you know, we talked last week about the beyond where, you know, at one point in the middle of the beyond, the, uh, everything disappears and our main character is unable to get anybody to believe her that there was this blind woman around, that there was this book, all this kind of stuff. That's very much the position that Carlotta is in in the book where you're with her through these attacks, but then at the same time, once we have the psychiatrist come in, Dr. Schneiderman coming in, and he is giving these really detailed explanations as to why she could be having these attacks and that he's seen, you know, people have welts because of their hysteria, these psychosomatic kind of things. And I'm just like, wow, okay, well, is she really having these attacks or not? And if so, why? And that's the thing I kept thinking throughout the book. Why? Why is she being attacked? Who is attacking her? Because she's describing the attacker as being really big and Asian. Hi, I'm Tabitha Soren with MTV News. Today in the Sam Sweet case, the prosecution played the 911 call that Sam Sweet made the night he murdered his brother. Keep in mind, Mr. Sweet confessed one month later. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. My kid brother's been shot. I think it was an Asian gang or something. I saw someone. He looked Asian, and he was speaking another language. I'm pretty sure it was Asian. She's seeing this Asian person who is holding her down and raping her. And so I keep thinking, okay, who can this be? I'm trying to figure out, you know, is it the fucking gardener? What's going on? No. At one point she talks about how her second husband died and she was snowed in with the kids and was unable to get out. And so she's basically there with this dead body in this cabin and at one point she mentions how his eyes were kind of slanting so i'm thinking okay well maybe that's it you know as their his skin is pulling back but then another part of it she you know they really play up billy being out in the garage with his cars and always working on his cars and everything and at one point He's out there, and she sees his reflection in a bumper, and she describes his face as being distorted and his eyes being slanted. And so I was just like, oh, okay. And so then when Schneiderman brings up that whole thing about Billy, it's like, okay, I guess I can kind of see that. So it was interesting to try to put these pieces together in a much larger puzzle. I think that Felita really boiled it down much better in the screenplay. And then again, Daniel, from what you say, it might not have been DeFolita doing the, the work on the screenplay wholly. It could have been other people kind of contributing to this. So it's uh, it was definitely very interesting to have this rather sprawling story condensed into what it was. And I will say that the end is completely different as well because we have much more of Dr. Schneiderman falling in love with her and basically being ready to give up his practice. And his mentor was in a similar position, but his mentor basically let the woman go and she ended up going into an institution. And so in this one, uh, Dr. Schneiderman kind of gets to have his cake and eat it too, because he ends up getting 
Carlotta in an institution where he's giving her drugs and basically trying to ease back the dosage of, of psychotropic drugs and basically a lot of tranquilizers so that she can sleep without being raped. And he's getting her to a point where she is just getting raped a little bit, which I know is kind of a crazy thing to say, but now he can get her to speak to him because she's not completely zonked out on these drugs, but she's still having all these feelings at night. So he's, he's basically has become her protector. To me, he wins. He is, is the one that, that ends up getting Carlotta. There is none of this, you know, and they lived happily ever after they live strangely ever after in this uh, asylum for all intents and purposes. So it was a very disquieting ending of this. And then there's also a lot more about her family, which doesn't necessarily come to much in the book. I mean, there's a lot of stuff about it. And I think that they treated that right by just lopping a lot of that stuff right out of the film. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think in the film they really uh, uh, wanted to cut the, uh, to the chase. Whenever uh, Sydney works on anything, uh, whether it be, you know, uh, if Chris File or, or, you know, uh, you know Hit or, or Iron Eagle 4 or whatever, there's always some level of, uh, of his own tinkering in there. And, and uh, he, he, he equates it with, uh, um, you know, you're, you're out in the rain on a, on a you know, windy night and, uh, you know, it's miserable and everything. And, and then uh, this uh, really rickety bus comes along and are, are you going to get on the bus and are you going to take it to where you really want it to go? Uh, and, you know, are, are you going to make it this and, uh, uh, express bus? He, he, uh, it's one of the first things he said about uh, uh, his kind of what he does during the, the process early on is that he takes the material and says, uh, how, how can I make it better? And he goes, sometimes it works. Uh, it, you know, if Chris File and, and Lady Sings the Blues were, were things that, uh, um, that really didn't uh, work when I was in the writing stages, then we, we took we, we we took the bus to where we, where we wanted it to go, and those movies worked. And then other times, it didn't work, and I couldn't have I couldn't exercise any control over over where those projects went. Like in, in, uh, Superman Four, he couldn't change anything in the script because Chris Street wouldn't have it, and the writers wouldn't have it. So he just kind of plotted his way through it and tried tried whatever whatever he could to make it better. But obviously, that that movie was a lost cause. But uh, um, but with, with the entity, there was there's a, like I said, there's always some level of tinkering on his part, and trying to uh, if not make it better, also to personalize it for him. Um, and it kind of comes. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting considering where the film comes thematically in his career, taking it to, you know from uh, from a career retrospective point of view, because uh, this is like the third. Film and a, and a three-film series of uh, like woman in trouble, you know. Um, so where he takes this kind of uh, um, statement about that is very interesting. So there's always some level of Sydney taking, going in, kind of changing things, tailoring them to his liking, what he wants the film to achieve. So th- there was some level of that on on this film. I feel very bad for this film because from what I've read, and and Daniel, hopefully you'll be able to confirm or deny this, I read that it was ready to go in 81, and it ended up being delayed until 83. It was, what, uh, February 83 it comes out, and so in the interim, I mean, (laughs) this movie, they, they... 
don't take pains to, but they definitely explain what a poltergeist is. And in the interim between when this was supposed to be going and when it finally came out, this little movie that maybe some people heard of called Poltergeist by Toby Hooper slash Steven Spielberg comes out right there, dead center, June 1982. Huge hit. All of a sudden, we all know what poltergeists are. And then this movie comes out, and it kind of reminded me of that whole Matrix 13 floor kind of thing, where it's just like, oh, you're just riding the coattails of this other film. And it's like, no, this one you know, was a book back in the 70s, and the movie was ready to go, but it didn't happen. So now it looks like it is a follow-up to Poltergeist. Right. Yeah, uh, and just a, just a quick kind of nerdy joke aside, uh, it's, you, you could say it was Toby Hooper slash Spielberg or Toby Hooper parentheses Spielberg. Yeah, what, what happened with the release of the film was kind of tragic in that it was, it was bankrolled by a, uh, a new company uh, called ACI, which uh, stands for American Cinema International. Uh, and they also bankrolled uh, I, the Jury, which was the... Uh, um, the Mike Hammer, uh, Armand, uh, uh, Asante film that, that came out in 82, as well as, um, a number of others. And also, um, uh, Fox, what was the actual, uh, distributor of the film. So both the production company and the, the releasing company were having major, uh, financial problems. Uh, and, and it also with Fox, it, it reared its ugly head on, uh, on, on uh, Scorsese's uh, Arcane Comedy, which uh, was actually scheduled for release in 81. That film also didn't come out until 83. Um, and, uh, and as well as uh, in, in either jury. So, so ACI was bankrupt and they, they folded after, uh, after the entity and, and either jury were shot. And, I, and uh, prior to that, they had bankrolled a bunch of like, uh, you know, kung fu kind of chop suey movies, and and they, and so the, the entity was kind of their their bid for uh, for a more prestige film, and they, they actually brought on Harold Schneider as I mentioned earlier, who who uh, produced uh, Days of Heaven and Last Picture Show with with his with his brother Bert. Um, Bert is kind of more well known for the for the kind of BBS uh, American New Cinema movement, but his brother Harold. Uh, it was his property, and they originally wanted uh, Roman Polanski to do it, as I said, and, and it was going to be the, their bid for the big time. Uh, and then uh, Sidney had just been—he had just quit and had been fired from two movies. He had, been, he had quit *Night of the Juggler*, and uh, and he was fired from uh, *The Jazz Singer* uh, with uh, Neil Diamond and Lawrence Olivier, um, which he he wanted to get fired from that movie because that was uh, not a good. Uh, Situation. I wound up being a pretty bad movie, and uh, even though I like Night of the Juggler for uh, on its own merits, uh, I'm not sure uh, uh, if you've seen that one. But it's, it's worth uh, worth a check out. It's pretty pretty outrageous New York uh, uh, thriller action film. So he was kind of on the outs with Hollywood at that point, um, and had been kind of rebranded and an enfant terrible because uh, uh, you know. He was kind of uh, lambasted in these headlines for being unmanageable and kind of, uh, you know, prima donna. Um, so uh, um, so when, when Entity came along, he had actually just gotten back from, from the Philippines. There's a really, really good uh, uh, story here. When he, and he, was, he wound up doing favors for other people. So the, his friend Andre Morgan, who had produced Boys of Company C, was making a movie in, in the Philippines called Night Games. 
which is kind of a sexy, um, you know, I don't know, kind of X-rated thriller and everything. And I guess the team was being a total nutcase about it. And, and, and they wanted to fire him, but I guess they couldn't. So uh, Andre asked Sydney to come over to the Philippines and just kind of hang around for a while uh, and make Roger paranoid that, that, oh, yeah, we have a director waiting in the wings here. If you don't shape up, we're going to. So he had he'd spent a few years, like, just kind of hanging out and doing this. So when the entity finally came along, I was like, I have a chance to regain my name and my and my uh reputation here um so uh so he so i think the entity did mean a great deal to him uh when he was prepping it and uh, um even though he didn't uh, he wanted to cast uh, uh craig t nelson in the role of uh, in alex rocco's role uh this is ironically for poltergeist he he really fought for craig t nelson it was harold schneider who uh who wanted to he, uh, he claims he was on a kind of a power play uh, and and didn't want to give uh, um, Sydney a totally free reign, and ironically, he, the very next year he wanted to doing Poltergeist. But uh, so there was some uh, there was amount an amount of uh, uh, restrictions, and that he he couldn't cast everyone he wanted to. He found he well, he did find David Labiosa uh, as an actor on a on a made for TV movie with Colin Dewhurst. I believe it was called a, a Death Sentence. Going to the film and saying, I'm going to go back to my old visual style that I patented with Icarus file, not Belusa and naked runner. And I'm just going to do these crazy angles and canted frames and Dutch angles and, and low angle shots and just kind of go to town with it. Um, and, uh, and he did. And, and, and that's actually, uh, after there was one of the, as I mentioned earlier, one of the later films I saw, uh, in my, uh, Sydney Fury, uh, study years back. And, uh, um, when I saw this, I was like, Oh wow, he's, this is like, the old days. This is like he's like going back to this older, you know, kind of uh, uh, shooting style. So you know that's that's interesting on its own. So uh, the, and then um, in terms of the movie coming out with the reviews, um, I mean there there were there were critics at the time who hate like Gene Siskel just tore it to shreds. There's it's on fire. You can you can Google it. Gene Siskel's review is like he's not he not only hates the film but he's like indignant about the film. And can't believe that this is a level of trash or whatever that they're they're you know that whatever ha- and he, I think he said at one point like whatever happened to his, uh, uh, Sidney Fury he was once a great you know uh, director or a great workman like director or whatever and then he and he he winds up making this crap and then and he he he, he used this one film and its release as like an indictment of where Hollywood was going and um, flash forward years later. Um, when I tell people uh, that I'm that I that I was doing a book on on Sidney J. Fury, it's like people either said one of three things. They said, "Ah, uh, Superman four and I was like, "Ah," uh, uh, or they said, uh, "Hit Chris File." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, Hit Chris File." Or most of them actually wound up saying the Entity. Um, and uh, when I approached Gavin Smith at uh, uh, Lincoln Center. I, I said I'd like to. I'm writing a book on, on Sydney Fury, and I'm, and I was wondering if you guys would would be willing to maybe do a a, you know, a, a, a retrospective of his films to kind of coincide with the book, which didn't wind up happening. And uh, uh, but but the first thing that Gavin Smith said before anything else, he said, "Well, the entity is a masterpiece." So uh, you know it's, it has gotten reappraisal. And if you read uh, like like I read the Time Out review earlier. Uh, Scorsese naming it as one of the top uh, 11 uh, uh, scary films of all time. 
above The Shining and, and uh, Psycho, I think. Uh, and uh, you have Peter Tchaikovsky's uh, uh, um, film about it, which is like you know, which all of a sudden became this kind of art film uh, sensation. And, and uh, usually, also if you mention the entity, they mentioned uh, Outer Space, uh, his his short film, where he uses footage from it. So there's a kind of like new, newfound uh, respect and admiration for it decades later. Even though upon original release, the LA Times gave it a very good review. Uh, New, York, New York Times gave it like a cautious but respectable review, I guess. Uh, so it was kind of across the board. I think a lot of people didn't know how to approach it, you know, because it was very delicate uh, subject matter. If you like the entity, you'll probably love Hawa. Did you guys have a chance to see Hawa, the 2003 Indian remake of the entity? No. I didn't watch the whole thing. Um, I saw uh, a few sequences, and uh, it seems it seemed to me a lot like a uh, like a I don't know. I call I call like for instance Gus Van Sant's Psycho. I call like uh, that's aesthetic masturbation. It seemed like one of those type of uh, endeavors because the the, the bathroom scene it, it struck me as uh, fairly. Fairly like a um, an exact uh, replica of the original. I'm not sure how much of the rest of the movie is like that, but uh, but yeah, it did seem a, a bit like that. The kind of Gus Van Sant uh, psycho re-realization, or whatever you want to call it, or ripoff. <laughs> I think we've talked on the show before about how we live in a, a remix culture uh, kind of world right now. And I definitely saw a lot of remixing going on with this one because there are big chunks that are coming right out of the entity. I also saw quite a bit of poltergeist with it because the end of it, the end conflict, you know, we don't have our main character who's played by taboo. Um, one of the, the better known, uh, Indian actresses out there. She doesn't have her house recreated in a laboratory, in a gymnasium or anything, she ends up having a one-on-one battle with this creature, this creature who has stolen her kid. So it very much, one of her two daughters very much feels like, you know, when Carol Ann goes missing in Poltergeist. And she's there, she's battling it with this uh, talisman that she got from this Tibetan woman and blah, blah, blah. And so that ends up being over. She's won the day. She goes back to the house and there's almost again, that exact ending of her in the house and the door closing. And the creature doesn't call her the C word at this particular point. It says something else and it's subtitled, but it's not an English word. So I was like, okay, I, I am missing what's happening here. She goes out, there's the family. It's her brother now instead of her son. And there's not any feelings towards the brother. And then there's uh, the landlord who's out there. Who's like, Hey, come on, let's go. And yeah, so it was, it, it was so long. It was well over two hours. And you oh, know, when people Indian talk movie. about Indian, <laughs> well, yeah, it's an Indian movie, but generally an Indian movie, it's that long because of the singing and the dancing. There's no singing and dancing in this film. So I got kind of, you It'd know, frustrated. Hot. Oh yeah. I would love it though. You know, yeah, like, musical entity would be very strange. Yes. 
but I, I, I could I could handle that. I would watch a musical version of the entity, but there was no songs in this one. So not only that, but a Bollywood musical entity. A Bollywood musical entity would just be a friggin' free for all. I didn't get a chance to watch the Indian film, but to me, what's interesting about the entity is I think it would make a good center film of a triple bill. Because to me, I can sort of see the DNA in The Exorcist, and I can see the DNA in The Entity in Ghostbusters. How do you see Ghostbusters picking this one up? Is it the freezing of the ghost? Well, it's the whole parapsychologist and all of that stuff, right? And then the idea of trying to trap and bust the ghost. And and then, to me, the whole aspect of the domestic situation and you know this thing kind of taking over the domestic sphere is you know the roots of it being in the exorcist which is interesting with the end crawl that you were talking about all of this happening around 75 76 and I know that whenever things such as The Exorcist or other movies about possessions and things like that happen in the pop culture, they then start to see a rise in those kind of calls to the church and quote-unquote exorcisms taking place uh, in the larger overculture, like in the real world where these you know people start believing they're seeing ghosts and whatnot. That is the strangest thing, now that you mention it, that there is not a Catholicism angle to the entity. You know, I'm talking about the movie now, and I, I can't really remember it being in the book, because it seems to be, the, the book is divided up into four major sections, and each one of those is named, you know, the, Car, there's a Carlotta, there's the Dr. Schneiderman, there's the two parapsychologists, and then the entity itself gets a, a section and there's no father Marin there's no uh, you know like we do have Carlotta Morin you know this uh, Latina woman and you know that in that culture and I know I'm probably going to get skewered for this but generally the stereotype is that our Latino and Latina brothers and sisters are very Catholic so you would think that that would have played something into this but well, again maybe it was too exorcisy. Well I, I also think that there is a religious element in there but it's a, it's a rather nefarious one where um Barbara Hershey's character mentions at one point that my father was a preacher, and right. he, he touched me the way that uh, one shouldn't touch uh, a child. Um, so there is this kind of intimation that uh, um, that maybe religion is a, is a kind of a spoiled, um, you know, rotted uh, um, you know element in her life that that, that even like that there would have been no father Marin because because her father might have poisoned the well on it perhaps. Um, but yeah, I, I, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to point out though, that there is a mention of like, you know, my father was a preacher and he was, you know, he was, uh, um, had his own, uh, issues with, uh, uh, sexual abuse of me, uh, in point of fact. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I think there is a religious aspect in the movie, but it, it's not, it's not the, the panacea of Max von Sydow. It's it, rather, it's this kind of other, other, um, Less, much less uh, auspicious thing that uh, wouldn't do any good for her. Now, Rob, when you're talking about Ghostbusters, I thought maybe you're talking about the ghost sex that happens in Ghostbusters, which, of course, is um, 
what do they call it? Night terrors. Spectrophilia. Well, I mean, they've done research into that and the people who are, they're awake and they're paralyzed, sleep paralysis, and they can see things, but they can't move. And the idea was, is that these, you know, demons or whatever, where they're holding you down, it's a, it's a neurotic condition or, you know, um, neurological condition in which you're awake but you're still like dreaming at the same time. So this leads to the concept where you're sort of locked in your own head, but you're still able to observe the room at the same time while you're actively dreaming. I know people that have night terrors, which is also what it's called. I have to say that that bit with Ray in Ghostbusters is probably the most embarrassing part of that film. You know, that was a outtake. Uh, there's this whole thing where the Ghostbusters go upstate New York and they're hunting a ghost uh, up there and the ghost ends up having sex or at least giving a, a, a hummer to Ray in that. And that ends up making it back into the film in that section. And it just, that part never worked for me. And it really, like, the movie, I won't say it's family friendly, but that scene is one of those where it's just like, Mommy, what's happening? <laughs> you know, it just does not fit with the rest of the film for me. Even with the oversexed, you know, uh, Zool and everything, I, it just doesn't work for me. Yeah, I. I... You just actually reminded me of that. I'd totally forgotten about that part of Ghostbusters. Yeah, it's just Dan Aykroyd being Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, yeah. With the, yeah I remember he makes like a, some comically orgasmic face for a comic effect. So, Daniel, not only do we like to talk to you about uh, Sidney J. Fury films, but there's a reason for that, because you are kind of the Sidney J. Fury expert. And by the time this podcast comes out, I think it's going to be just uh, T-minus, what, two weeks or something until your book on Fury comes out. Yes, that's that's uh, sounds about right. So, um, what is the name, and where can people get it, and why should they get this book about Sidney J. Fury's films? Um, well, it'll be available, like you know, it'll be Barnes and Noble. It'll be you know, it's on Amazon now. You can it's it's available for pre order, um, and uh, you know, it'll be in the in a lot of the major chains because uh, the the uh, uh, publisher um, is a. Uh, um, um, University Press of, of Kentucky's Spring Classic series, and they, they uh, all their books wind up hitting uh, uh, the chain. I've, I've, I've actually gone into Barnes and Noble and peeked at them in the past. Uh, they did one on uh, Dalton Trumbo uh, this past year that just came out, and they also did one on. Uh, I mean, oh, they, they have a lot going on. I guess there's one about uh, my life as a Mankiewicz. Uh, which is, I think, Tom Mankiewicz writing about uh, his father Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Uh, and uh, and also the Bob Crane book about you know uh, my father's murder or whatever. So th- there's all there are, all the books wind up hitting the the chain. So what uh, so about my book? Um, I'm I know I'm an oddball. I know I know that uh, uh, I'm probably one of going to be one of the uh, few people who says that uh, Cindy J. Fury is one of uh, is one of my all time favorite directors, uh, and I count him. In my own pantheon, among the likes of, I mean, I love Robert Altman, I love Joseph Losey, I love Jacques Rivette, I love, you know, a lot of, uh, um, and Nick Rogue is another favorite. But, uh, um, but uh, what's interesting is that uh, you say that he directed Ipcris File, Lady Sing the Blues, Boys and Company C, which inspired uh, Pullman Jacket, uh, Empathy, and 
Leather Boys, which is a very big movie in the UK, uh, much, much bigger here than in the U.S., where it's not really well-known that much at all. But in, in the U.K., uh, um, Leather Boys is a pretty well-known movie. But you say that one guy directed all these uh, and also made the first two um, feature films made in, in English Canada. Uh, it's a pretty fascinating history of, like, you know, you can look at a film like uh, Leather Boys, which is a British realist, um, British New Wave drama, like a, like a, a kitchen sink drama, which is probably my favorite film of, of, of Sydney's. And then you can, then you flash forward a couple decades later and Ladybugs, what the fuck? Um, you know, Rodney Dangerfield comedy with a bunch of little girls playing soccer. Um, you know, what, how, you know, how do you connect these things? You know, how did this, you know, and, and, you know, so examining the career of a director who began as kind of a young gun, like all these articles written about him in, in Canada and Toronto in the late fifties as like the, the wonderkind and, the, and kind of like, you know, he's, he's going to be people, all, all these people saying he's really going to be something. He's got such great vision. And then he goes to England and he makes, um, a lot of, a, a great many films there, uh, Finally, gets one that hits big worldwide. With Chris File moves to Hollywood, works with Brando and Frank Sinatra and Robert Redford, and and you know so on and so forth. And then uh, kind of enters into the '80s, which uh, um, a lot of directors in the '80s uh, seem to really uh, hit rock bottom or or kind of spin out in a weird way. And very, I think, and I was talking to to people about this recently. Very few really recovered uh, from that decade. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and really only in, in my estimation, Altman and, uh, uh, who wound up working in that decade on his own terms doing the, his little theater films and, uh, uh Scorsese, um, but Bogdanovich never really regained his previous, uh, reputation and there are a bunch of people, Hal, Hal Ashby never recovered. So, uh, really catching, uh, a career that's lasted over, over 55 years at this point. And seeing seeing one artist evolve, and seeing the the kind of wide swath of types of films that he made, and seeing really what connects all of them, and uh, it's it's really a kind of also an an uh, a, a uh study uh, as well um, in terms of the recurring themes, which they're they're it's very clear to me that that all the films are connected by that. And uh, also, just uh, in terms of uh, narrative, there's just uh, um, never before told or written stories about Brando and about uh, working with uh, Frank Sinatra, working with Peter O'Toole, working with you know Lawrence Olivier. I mean, you know, and because Sidney has never really paid much mind to um, doing press for himself, and he's kind of shunned journalists and shunned uh, like, and, and as soon as the time comes to promote a film of his, he's moving on to the next thing. Uh, so the, n- none of his own uh, stories have never really gotten out because you know, he just hasn't been interested up until now. So there are a lot of a lot of great behind the scenes tales about uh, making all these films. I mean, he's made uh, he just finished his his, his 50th uh, feature film, um, which I was I was uh, happy to be on, on on the set with him back in June and July. So there's a lot, I think, a lot going for the book. That and uh, it's really, um, and uh, what the press is really happy about it and excited about to promote is that it's not, it's not the usual for them. It's not, it's not another book about Hitchcock. It's not an, another book about you know Fuller. Those guys are great, uh, granted, but uh, but having a really unusual director 
and telling his story and looking at the films really in depth is uh, um, something that can really, I think, uh, um, market in a, in a very interesting way, which they, they, their marketing meeting with me was very interesting because they were saying, like, yeah, this is going to be, this is <laughs> going to be fun. We're not used to a book, uh, a biography of someone like this. The name of the book is Sidney J. Fury, Life and Films, and it comes out November 5th, 2015. And like you said, you can get it over at Amazon or pick it up at your local favorite bookstore. Always support your independent bookstores if you possibly can. And if they don't have the book, go ahead and have them order it. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm all for that. All right, so let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Lock them out and bar the door. Lock them out forevermore. Nook and cranny, window, door. Seal them out forevermore. Curse, go back. Curse, go back. Back with double fear and black. Curse, go back. Curse, go back. Back with double pain and lack. Silver arrow through the night. Silver arrow, take thy flight. Silver arrow, seek and find. Cursing art and cursing mind. That's right. Next week, we're wrapping up our Shocktober with Hexen, an early foray into the horror genre, and uh, we might actually find a connection between the entity and Hexen. Make sure to uh, download next week. Well, before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Daniel Kremer, for coming on. Daniel, just as a reminder, where can people go to find out more about your upcoming book, sir? My website is confluencefilm.com. As I mentioned, the book is available uh, already on, on Amazon and whatnot, so any information that you want to uh, you know, learn about, about that, that, that particular project. I'm also uh, now working on a book about uh, Joan McClellan Silver, so on my, on my blog, There'll be uh, information about and updates about that project as well. Once again, the name of the book is Sidney J. Fury, Life and Films by Daniel Kremer, available 11-5-2015. We will have links to that over at our website, projection-booth.com. Thanks again, Daniel, for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. We hope you'll consider going over to our website, taking the time to leave us some feedback, go over to iTunes, leave us a review, maybe donate some of your hard-earned cash to us. You know, we do have a Patreon account now, so just go ahead and do that. Or just come by the website and say hello. You know, it's uh, just a few more ways you can help us taking over this world and the next one, too.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.